Amen. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Good. Yeah, a few of you are awake. Glad you're here. Um, hey, my name is Jordan Elder, and I am super excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, I've had the privilege and the opportunity to be able to be with a lot of your core leadership of this church uh, over the weekend uh, out at, where were we at? Seeger Springs. It's a cool place. Yeah. Had a good time out there. And, um, and man, just it's been such a joy to be with this church family. And so if you're a guest, uh, me too. Uh, I'm new here. My first time this morning as well. And just glad you're here. And just want you to know that, man, this is a cool place. This church is really a family uh, that loves Jesus and that loves this city. And so if you're looking for a church that loves Jesus, that will love you, will love the city, I can testify to the fact that this is a place for you. And so I'm glad you're here as well. Um, I am get the opportunity to serve as a pastor of a church in the suburbs of Austin, a city called Round Rock, Texas, uh, where I helped plant a church there back in 2011. And we've been able to partner uh, in the same family of churches called the Soma Family of Churches with The Crossing. We're also part of the Acts 29 network. And, and so um, uh, my job at Redeemer is I get to preach a few times a month, and then I get to work with our missional community leaders. Uh, we're training and equipping our church to multiply missional communities in our city. And so I um, got to talk about missional communities a little bit this weekend and excited to get to be with you and preach this morning. When you're with a new church and you have you know, just kind of one sermon, um, you always kind of wonder, where are we going to go? What am I going to talk about? And I thought, well, um, I got one sermon, probably a good idea to maybe look at Jesus's sermon, sermon Jesus preached. That's probably a good idea to go there. Uh, probably a pretty good sermon that I could pull some stuff from. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter five. You have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter five. And, um, and this is what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter five. We're primarily going to camp out in verses 13 through 16, but I'm going to read one through 16 here in a bit. But this is Jesus's sermon on the Mount. And essentially, as Jesus is launching his ministry, um, and he is beginning to, to, um, uh, to, to really show uh, what the kingdom of God is all about, he invites people to come up the mountain. And he says, he says come up the mountain, and, I, and I'm going to teach you about the kingdom of God. Right? We know that later Jesus prays. He teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. And he says, um, he says uh, pray like this, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It tells us to pray for this. Pray that, that God's kingdom would come on earth. That, that, that God would uh, bring good news. That he would uh, bring redemption and rescue. Not only to us, but to our world. He tells us to pray for this. And in the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is he's basically going to kind of start to teach and unpack what the kingdom of God is all about. And when we think about the kingdom of God, sometimes it's kind of hard for us to wrap our our, our minds around that, right? We, we, don't, we don't live in a culture where we actually have a king and a kingdom. And so it's hard for us to understand what is the kingdom of God. So I want to just give you a really simple way of thinking about the kingdom of God, right? Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you, right? What Jesus teaches us about the kingdom of God is that anywhere where Jesus rules and reign, reigns is the kingdom of God. What we're going to see here in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is going to show us who the kingdom of God is for. In other words, who are the people? What does it look like for you to, 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 to let Jesus rule and reign over your life as king? What does it look like? Who are the people that are willing to let Jesus be their king? We're going to see that in a second. And then he's going to show us what life in Jesus' kingdom looks like. We're going to look at that as well. So who is the kingdom of God for? What does the kingdom of God look like? And then finally, in verses 13 through 16, where we're going to camp out, Jesus is going to show us his vision for how his rule and reign, his kingdom moves forward in the world. How does his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? So that's where we're going. Let me pray. 
we'll jump in. God, I thank you for this church family. Thank you that you love this city. You love Monroe, and thank you that this morning we get to join with the saints all across the world and gather here in the heart of the city and worship you, reorient our worship around you, be reminded of your grace and your goodness and your kindness. Um, God, thank you for this church. I pray your blessings over this church. I pray that you would continue to strengthen this church. I pray, God, that they would know the depths of your love, that you would equip them for life and ministry here in the city. And this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, as we sit down and we be quiet and we listen to your word proclaimed, I pray, God, that you would encourage us, you would convict us, and most of all, God, you would remind us of the good and abundant life that is found in your kingdom, that we would forsake our own kingdoms and we'd find our life hidden in you, Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to read Matthew chapter 5, start reading in verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Who's the kingdom of God for? The poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, in other words, those who are willing to admit their weakness those who would humble themselves to admit, I'm a terrible king. (laughs) I'm a terrible king of my own life. I need a new king, a good king. I need Jesus. Those who would repent, the the, the weak. Blessed are those who mourn. Who's the kingdom of God for? Those who, who are needy, who know they need healing, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you, and others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on account, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven." For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so here we have in these Beatitudes, Jesus giving these flourishing statements. In other words, he says, the blessed life, the good life, the flourishing life are these people. Life in this way. And he unpacks it for us. The poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the things of God. This is who the kingdom of God is for. This type of person is who Jesus came for. This type of person gets to live in the kingdom of God, the humble, the willing to repent, the people who would acknowledge their need for healing. And he also begins to show us in the Sermon on the Mount what life in the kingdom of God looks like. Those who live in Jesus' kingdom, in other words, those who live their lives under the rule and reign of Jesus, who submit their life to Jesus' lordship. He says those are the merciful, the pure in heart, peacemaking, persecuted perhaps even on on account of him that these are the things that should mark the lives of cross followers as we live into the kingdom of God here and now and then we get to verses 13 and 16 this is where I really want to camp out because a lot of scholars will say this is kind of the the thesis statement of the sermon on the mount Jesus is going to go on and he's going to preach a lot more uh, uh, the sermon on the mount it's going to go all the way through chapter 7 but this 13 through 16 is really kind of the hinge It's the hinge of this whole Sermon on the Mount. In other words, if this is who the kingdom of God is for, and he's going to go on and he's going to preach more about what life in the kingdom looks like, this chapter, this right here is his thesis. This is where he's showing us this is how the kingdom of God expands in the world. This is how uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done will take place. 
So let's read it, verses 13 through 16. So he says to his disciples, anyone who would come into his kingdom, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Now, um, I'm certain that many of you are familiar with this text. You've probably heard this a lot before, right? Um, how many of you grew up going to like, like a youth ministry, youth group? Okay. Um, I've spoken at a lot of youth events, and probably one out of every three that I've spoken at uh, the theme of the event was like using these metaphors here, you know, like salt and light. You know, you have the t-shirt afterward with the light bulb and the salt shaker on it, you know, um, salt and light, right? We're so familiar with these metaphors. We teach our kids songs about these metaphors, right? I should have had Scott sing it uh, before the sermon, but this little light of mine, right? Hide it under, but oh no, you know, <laughs> right? Uh, I'll stop. But, um, but we're so familiar with these metaphors. And uh, sometimes this is a problem for us actually understanding how the kingdom of God goes forward and what it looks like for us to live in the kingdom. Because we've become so, so, such common language in our Christian circles. And we run the danger of becoming so familiar with these metaphors that we miss the deep significance of what Jesus is trying to teach us with these metaphors. So it's critical that we don't miss the significance of this text, but that we understand them in light of the larger context of the Beatitudes that we just read and the Sermon on the Mount, right? So wait, who is it that's the salt and light of the world? Is it the strong, the impressive? Is it the glitz and the glamour? No, who is it? Yeah, it's the weak. It's, it's those who need to be healed. It's the meek. It's the poor in spirit. Right? This is, there's some significance here to what Jesus is teaching us. Not the impressive, not the smart, not the strong. And so after showing us who the kingdom is God is for and what the kingdom of God should look like, he now gives us, this is Jesus's mission strategy. This is Jesus's vision for how the kingdom of God goes forward, that it would be through his disciples. Don't miss this. His disciples living everyday lives as distinct people, It's the ordinary, everyday people that he invites to come up the mountain, living distinct lives as distinct people. In other words, salty and bright in a bland and dark world. Salty and bright people in a bland and dark world. That's how the kingdom of God goes forward. That's how others will come to worship Jesus. I've heard it said once that, that, uh, you know, you might say, hey, how many of you guys in the room are worship leaders? And like Scott might raise his hand or Emily might raise their hand. And they say, no, no, no. All of you are worship leaders. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. That every single one of us, of his disciples, through the way that we get the opportunity to live our lives as distinct people in distinct ways in a broken and dark world, have the opportunity to lead other people to worship God. That's what he's telling us. That through your life, through your good works, the Greek word there in verse 16 where he says, let your light shine before men so that others might see your good works. That that Greek word there is is really righteousness. Like so others will see your righteousness. So they'll see the, the righteousness of Christ in you. 
and that they would worship. Or that they'd look at you and go, man, you're, you're weak and, and unimpressive, but there's something in you. What is it? What's well, Jesus, right? It's Jesus. He's my strength, not me. Um, and so this is Jesus's mission strategy. That this is how the kingdom of God expands. This is the plan for how the love of God goes forth in the world. That as we follow Christ, as we live into his kingdom, that others will see the righteousness of Christ in us and they will worship God. Listen to this. He's saying it's not through a political party. <laughs> That's not how the kingdom of God goes forward. It's not through a political party. It's not through our social media platforms. Right? So if you're primarily only like preaching the gospel through social media, you're missing Jesus' strategy. It's not through our social media platforms. It's not through church gimmicks and programs and leaving gospel tracts on the table instead of a tip for your waitress. <laughs> That's not how the kingdom of God goes forward. But it's through the lives of his people, through the lives of his disciples. And so what these salt and light metaphors make us do is they actually make us step back and ask some questions. They actually challenge our paradigms about Christianity. That's what they do. They make us realize that, that if this is Jesus' mission strategy for how the kingdom of God goes forward in our city and in the world, that we as his disciples, like, we must live differently. Like, we must really consider obedience to Jesus and the significance of obedience to Jesus. We're no longer who we used to be, right? That's not who we are anymore. We're no longer like the world that we live in. In other words, to say that you're a Christian, Jesus says here in the text, to say you're a Christian, but to blend in with the world is to be unsalted salt, Jesus says. Like if, if no one in your school or in your na- if your neighbor or, or in your workplace, like if, if they would be surprised to find out that you're a Christian, Jesus said it's like unsalted salt. It's, it's, it's pointless. What's the, that's, isn't that, that's pretty silly, isn't it? Unsalted salt. Like, if you bought that off the shelf? <laughs> like, uh, and that's what Jesus is saying. Like, it's, it's worthless. Not that you're worthless. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying the, that faith is worthless. It's purposeless and powerless faith. And so, so what it challenges us with here is that we must live differently. It, it doesn't do any good for anyone. Uh, to say you're a Christian, but to live for your own way or your own gain is to be a lamp covered up. It doesn't make any sense. It defeats the purpose of why it was turned on. It defeats the purpose of why Jesus saved you and redeemed you to just blend in with the world. Why would you cover up a lamp that you turned on? It, it, it's silly. And so what this does is it challenges our paradigms for Christianity. And I think there's two key things that when we really dig into these salt and light metaphors and understand Jesus's mission for his, uh, how his kingdom goes forward, it challenges our paradigms about two things that I think we really need in the Bible Belt, in the, here in, especially in, here in the South. And the first one is it challenges our paradigm about the gospel. Here's what we learn from Jesus's mission strategy about the gospel. Uh, we learn that the gospel is not just a message to be believed in our minds but that it's good news to be embodied. In other words, the gospel is good news for all of our life. It's good news for every aspect of our life. It's not just a message to be believed. It's not just mere theological facts that we subscribe to. Okay? That, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is certainly a message. Don't, don't mishear me. It's certainly a message. Uh, it's certainly a message. It's a message of how God uh, sent his own son into a broken world in real time and real history. The God of the universe in real time. 
Like this is a real story that we're caught up in. In real history, he took on flesh. He came into the world. He entered into a broken world. He understood our humanity, not to condemn it, but to offer it salvation. It's certainly a message. It's a message of how he does something for us that none of us can do for ourselves, that he pays the price for our sin, that he on a cross in the Roman world in real time in history atoned for our failures, that he appeases the justice and the wrath of God upon the cross for sin. It's certainly a message that he resurrects from the dead and that he defeats sin and death and Satan on our behalf, and that he offers us new life and access into his kingdom. It is certainly a message, but it's a message that gets down deep into our soul, and it changes the very nature of who we are. It transforms us. It reshapes us. It reorients who we are and how we live. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who believe in peacemaking, does he? It's not just a message that stays in our head. He doesn't say, blessed are those who, who, um, who um, uh, believe uh, that it's good to be pure in heart. No, he says, blessed are those who are. It changes who we are. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you follow me, you don't just have new ideas about me, but you are new. You are salt. You are light. See, this is not just a message to be believed, but it's good news to be lived. And this is what leads us to our second paradigm shift that, that this passage leads us to. It, is that we, it changes our paradigm about discipleship. You see, a disciple of Jesus is someone who lives to obey Jesus in every aspect of life. In other words, your greatest desire is obedience to Christ in every aspect of life. This is what it means to be a disciple. I, I was a college pastor for about five years before I planted a church in Austin. And these, uh, I used to have guys come to me all the time and ask me if I'd disciple them. And here's what they meant. This was their paradigm for discipleship. They're like, hey, uh, will you disciple me? And their paradigm was, will you meet with me once a week and teach me everything you know about the Bible? Like, that's what they meant. Like, or will you meet with me every week and let's talk through Grudem's systematic theology? Like, I had this one guy, his name is Jacob Fisher. I love him to death. He's a great, he's a great, great guy now. He's like, has a family and a wife and kids, and he's doing great things for Jesus. But he met with me one time, and he was a freshman, and he said, hey, will you disciple me? And I said, sure, let's meet for coffee. And he starts talking to me, and, and he's just name-dropping all these theologians that he's read. Like, he, you could tell he was trying to impress me. It was like how, he was like the youth group valedictorian, okay? Like, that's who he was. And so he's like, here's, like, he's like, here's all these, these theologians that I've read. And I just told him, I said, hey, Jacob, that's awesome, man. How many non-Christians have you met since you've been on campus? And he just looked at me like, <laughs> and I said, I'll disciple you, but, uh, but you ha- I won't disciple you until you come back and tell me one friend that's a non-Christian that you've met in your dorm, then I'll disciple you. He said, isn't that where Jesus leads us? Isn't that discipleship? And so he challenges our paradigm. Discipleship isn't just learning more information about God. What that, that kind of disciple that produces is it produces a bobblehead Christian. Where I've got a lot of information in my head, but I've got tiny little hands and arms and a tiny little heart. You know, like, like that's the kind of disciple that, that, that our modern paradigm of discipleship produces. And this isn't what Jesus is calling us to. He says, you're not a bobblehead, you're salt and light. So a disciple of Jesus is someone whose greatest desire is obedience to Christ in every aspect of my life. I'm submitting all of my life to Jesus' lordship. He's my king, and so I want him to rule and reign over every aspect of my life, and so I'm submitting it to him. He's, my, he's a good king. I'm a terrible king. Jesus, be lord over every aspect of my life. But don't hear me. Don't mishear me. He's not calling us to pursue perfection. He's not calling us to perfect obedience. But he's saying that obedience would be our greatest desire. I have a a 10-month-old daughter named Madeline Rose, and she's learning to walk. And she's teaching me a lot about what it means to be a disciple as I'm watching her learn to walk. Here's what I mean. Um, 
watching a baby learn to walk is kind of odd. Because here's what happens. Generally, every third step, what do they do? They fall down. <laughs> and sometimes they fall down and, and they hurt themselves and they cry. But like everybody in the room is so excited. Like the baby's on the floor crying and everybody's like, yeah, way to go. <laughs> right? It's just weird. It's like, why are you cheering that your daughter's crying? But you're so proud because she's taken steps. I'm so proud because she's taken steps. And when she falls and stumbles, what does daddy do? Well, I go over and I pick her up and I hug her and I love her and I love you and put her back on her feet and she walks some more. You see, this is what obedience to Jesus looks like, being a disciple and pursuing to obey him in every area of my life because I know that I'm salt and I'm light. This is what it looks like that we, we, we don't, we're not perfect, but we stumble forward in discipleship. We stumble forward. And, and, and when we fall and when we make mistakes and when we sin, guess what? Our Abba, our Daddy, our G- Jesus comes and he picks us up and he says, it's okay. You're not defined by your mistakes or your failures or your sin. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, open, now go, keep going. Keep pursuing, keep following me, keep trying to obey me in every area of your life. You see, nothing in our lives should be held back from Jesus and from his lordship. So I just want to ask you, are there areas of your life where you are sluggish or lackadaisical about obedience to Christ? In other words, where you're just okay with not letting Jesus be lord of that area of your life. You're just okay with the fact that that there's disobedience there. You don't think it's that big of a deal. Because remember, who are we? We're salt. We're light. We're a distinct people living distinct lives so that others might see Jesus in us. They might see what it looks like to submit my life to Jesus and his lordship. So I want to ask you to consider that, and perhaps your marriage. Those of you that are married, you know, are we submitting our marriage to Jesus' lordship? Are we obeying Jesus in our marriage even when it's hard? Or even when we kind of want to check out? Men, when you come home from work and you're tired and, and your, your wife has been with the kids all day and she has that look in her eyes. I know my wife does when I come home sometimes. She's just got that look in her eyes and I know what it means. It's like, take these kids. I don't care what you do with them. Just get them out of here. I need 30 minutes, you know? <laughs> it's like, she's just like, take them. And, uh, and that's the last thing I want to do. I'm tired, right? But am I willing to serve my wife? Singles, are, are you submitting your singleness to Jesus, to his lordship, to his rule and reign? Are we submitting our sexuality to Jesus and to his lordship and, and, and stumbling forward and saying, God, I want to obey you. Even if I sin and struggle, make mistakes, my greatest desire is to obey you. And I'm going to bring that into the light. And I'm going to, and I'm going to honor you with my singleness. With my, I'm going to honor you with my sexuality. I'm going to honor you with my work. I'm going to honor you with my money. That Jesus, I want you to rule and reign over every aspect of my life. Be my king. See, this is Jesus' call in discipleship. Why is this important? Well, Jesus is going to go on and he's going to talk in the Sermon on the Mount about so many other areas of everyday life. He's going to talk about anger. He's going to talk about lust. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about conflict. He's going to talk about pride. He's going to talk about anxiety. It's all rooted in this vision for how the kingdom of God goes forward. How everyday people, because of the gospel, living as good news people, that their light is shining before men, that their our everyday lives are displaying his good news or declaring his gospel publicly for others to see it. You could say to sum it all up that Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 is a call to gospel living, to call to live out the gospel in our everyday lives. To so believe the good news about Jesus that you live it. And this is very different from legalism. This Jesus' call here for us to obey him passionately in every area of our life is very different than legalism. You see, uh, there's a lot of relig- religious legalism in the South that disguises itself as Christianity. 
But it's not the Christianity that Jesus is showing us here in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, legalism and religious rule following for my, is for my sake. It's for my earning and my elevating. It's what I grew I grew up in a little Baptist church, and I remember learning that, that to be a Christian was don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't date girls who do. Right? Yeah. And so, in other words, be good and hang out with good people. Like, that's what it means to be a Christian. See, that's not what Jesus is talking about here when he's calling us to, to passionate obedience to Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. It's not performance-driven. See, the gospel is about not what you do for God, but it's about receiving what God has done for you in Christ, by grace, through faith. It's about realizing that you can't perform for God. You don't have to perform for God, that Jesus has lived and died in your place, and his performance is sufficient for you. And so now this gospel starts to produce an obedience in our lives as an act of worship. I want to obey you with my sexuality out of worship for what you've done for me, Jesus. Not so that you'll be pleased with me. You're already pleased with me. I'm going to obey you with my, in, my, in my workplace. I'm going to forgive my boss who's awful to me every day. Make peace with him because of what you've done for me. You've made peace on my behalf. I'm going to serve my wife and my kids. I'm going to trust you with my singleness. Why? Because you're trustworthy. You've proven you're a trustworthy king. I'm going to obey you even if it's hard and I don't want to. And I'm tempted to do something else because you're worthy of all my worship. It's what Paul says in Romans 12.1 when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God. What he's saying is, offer your life, your everyday living is worship. This isn't the only place we worship, is it? We worship every day through our obedience to Christ. And here's what starts to happen. Three things. As we press into obedience to Jesus in light of what he's done for us, it produces worship to God. It communicates love to our fellow man. Whoever's around you, as you're obeying Jesus, you, you worship God, you love them, and you become a witness to a watching world in the everyday stuff of life. I'm going to tell you a story. My iPad's about to die, by the way. I forgot to charge it last night. So I'm on 4%, so I'm about to lose all my notes. So this is going to be fun. Let's just rock with it. Um, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm almost done, though. Um, uh, my wife's name is Sammy, and a few years ago, we had uh, some neighbors that we uh, were trying to get to know. We, we, had, we had started to really, the gospel got a hold of us. We started realizing some of these things I'm teaching this morning. And we started to realize, like, we wanted to embody and live out some of these things in the Sermon on the Mount. Like, we wanted to be salt and light. We wanted to be peacemakers. Um, and so we started to really try and get to know our neighbors. And their names are Eric and Julie. And we quickly found out that Eric and Julie had an extreme drug addiction to meth right there beside us. I mean, it's like we didn't live in the hood. We kind of, we lived, you know, we were, you know, anyway, just right there beside us, extreme drug addiction to meth. And the way we found out is because um, we started realizing that their kids would just stay in the front. They had two kids, two boys, nine and seven at the time. And their kids would stay in the front yard almost all the time. It was, we were surprised by it. And like they would never go in the house, even like around like lunchtime or dinner time. And we just and so we started to kind of talk with them and 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 realize like they they wouldn't tell us what was going on, but you just tell they didn't want to be inside. And so we started uh, started uh, and you know hey you guys you guys are welcome to come over here or if you need a snack you need some water you know our fridge is open to you. We had like a fridge in the garage, and so you know you're welcome to grab a water bottle or juice out of there. And and then I had an awkward inter- interaction with their dad about a week later. Um, I was going into my backyard to take trash to the trash bin, and it was cold. It was like 30 under, it was like below freezing that day. 
and I met him for the first time in the backyard. He was in his underwear. I'll tell you that story later. It was awkward. But he was just outside, 32 degrees in his underwear. Um, I think he was like working on his barbecue grill or something. It was awkward. So we start talking. So we start realizing there's something going on here. And then, and then as we get to know them, we have meals with them. Uh, we have conversations with them. We start to care for their kids. Uh, at one point, their kids are with their grandparents for the weekend. And their dog was just roaming around the neighborhood. And, uh, and we, we took care of their dog for like three days while they were on a, I guess on a bender. I don't know what you call it, but they were just, they were high for like three or four days straight. And so we start just, we start just trying to lift some of this stuff out. We're just going to love our neighbors. We're going to love them. We're going to care for them. Um, and uh, this is like a six month process. We start to, to, I start to talk with Eric on a regular basis out in the driveway and he's starting to be more honest with me. I share the gospel with him. He knows I'm a pastor. His wife starts hanging out with my wife and and they start talking, and they were just kind of on this up and down. You know, they'd have some good weeks and then some bad weeks, good weeks and some bad weeks, good weeks and some bad weeks. And there was one day after about six months of us investing with them, uh, and I could tell you so much more about There was at one point he was running his electricity from his house from an extension cord from my garage to his garage because we were tired of paying their light bill for them and him lying to us about when he'd pay me back. So I just said, I'm not doing it anymore. And anyway, we just, we tried to really live this stuff out even when it was hard. And one, one, one afternoon I came home and Julie's in our living room with my wife and I hear her having a conversation and she's blaming all of her issues on him. And she's saying, he's the problem. He's the problem. I should have never gotten in a relationship with him and I should leave him. And, but it's because of our kids that I don't. And, and he's the problem. And the ironic thing is I had a conversation a few days before with Eric and he was saying the same thing. She's the problem. She drags me back down. Every time I get clean, she pulls me back into it. And I hear her having this conversation, and she says something to the effect to my wife of, I just need to find a better relationship. I need to find a relationship like what you guys have. That's what I need. He's the problem. And it was like, all right, here's the moment. And so I walk into the room, and I said, I don't want to interrupt, Julie, but I heard what you said. And as tempted as I was, by the way, to say, yeah, you're right. You need to go find a man like me. Yeah. You know, uh, that's not, it wasn't the truth. Because here's what I told her. I said, Julie, that's not the truth. You don't need to find a relationship like ours because anything good that you're seeing in our relationship, like when you look at our life, anything good that you see about our marriage or about our family that you look at and you say, that's what I need, it's not us. It's, it's Jesus. Like, do you know who we would be, but not for Jesus? I don't want to know who we would be, but not for Jesus. So I said, that's not what you need. You need Jesus. Anything good you see in our life is because of Christ. The love, the, ki- the kindness, the compassion, the friendship that we've extended you is because this is what Jesus has done for us. He's pursued us. He's extended grace to us. And we began to talk through the gospel with Julie. And it was in that moment, my iPad just died, that, we reali- that in that moment we realized, that, that we tried to, that what, I tried, what I realized in that moment with Julie was that this is what Jesus is talking about. Like, let your light shine before men. You know how other people are going to come wor- become worshipers of Jesus? You know how God's Jesus' kingdom is going to go forward? You know how other people are going to see and understand the gospel? When they see it in our everyday living, as salt, as light, as distinct people, living a distinct way in our city. And it was like, a, that was like a, such a moment for me where I'm like, this is why. Like, like this is why we've, we've hung in there with this couple, you know? And so I just, as we close, I just want to ask you, how does Jesus want to use your Monday through Saturday? Just the ordinary stuff. Like, like how does Jesus want to use your, your faithful pursuit and obedience to Christ 
and the Monday through Saturday. You know, you might have some non-Christian friends that you would invite here, and I hope you would, so they might hear the gospel. But there's a whole lot of other people that don't know Jesus that, that you encounter Monday through Saturday. And he's not asking you to be a super Christian. He's not asking you to give a perfect gospel presentation. What is Jesus asking us to do? To live a life that puts him on display. To love, to serve, to be humble, to be a friend, to care. To care about the weak and the meek. And it's through that stuff that the kingdom goes forward. It's through that stuff. It's through our obedience. So I want to ask you to consider, is there an area of your life that maybe Jesus wants to work through? You know, Is there an area of your life that you've been holding back from his lordship? That, that he's saying, no, bring that into my kingdom because one, it would, it would worship me if you begin to obey me there. Two, it would put me on display. It would be a missional thing for you to actually bring that into obedience. So I want to ask you to consider that. What does it look like for you to, to obey Jesus in an area of your life that you've been holding back? Would you just identify that, that thing in your mind? What is it? And then finally, I just want to encourage you as a church. Um, I want to encourage you. Like, for 2,000 years, this has been Jesus' mission strategy. Not glitz, not glamour. Ordinary people, ordinary churches, in everyday places, living lives as salt and light. 2,000 years. And what has the church done in every place? It's continuing to go forward. The kingdom is going forward. Jesus' kingdom is expanding. What does it look like for the kingdom to come in Monroe as it is in heaven? It looks like you guys individually. I wish I knew all of your names. It looks like you and you and you and you and you and you living as salt and light in the ordinary, everyday places in which God has placed you. Why? All because of Jesus, what he's done for you. That's what it looks like. So I just want to encourage you. Press on, press in, keep doing what you're doing. Press on and press in. This is how God works. This is how he's always worked. This is how he will continue to work. I'm going to read this passage one more time, and we'll pray. Would you receive this? This is true about you. Even if it doesn't feel true, it is true about you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of Monroe. <laughs> but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Obey Jesus in Monroe. Live for his glory in Monroe. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Don't have a purposeless and powerless faith. You are the light of Monroe. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light, let the light of Christ shine before others, so that they may see your good works, they may see the righteousness of Christ within you, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let it be so, Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you, Jesus, that you came to seek and save the lost for the weak, like us, for the struggler, for the poor in spirit, for the religious elite. Uh, you, came, you came for anyone who would turn to you, so thank you for that. And then what an amazing thing it is that you have, have seen fit to not only save us and, and deal for, with our sin, but God, you are redeeming us 
Every aspect of our life, God, you want to touch. You want to bring good news, the good news of your grace and your power to every aspect of our lives. Our inner life, our fears, our anxiety, our relationships, our work, our hobbies. You want to bring good news to every aspect of our life. So I pray that whatever those parts of our lives are that we tend to want to hold back from you, that right now, God, we would just let you have them. We'd give them to you and we'd say, be king over that area of my life. Be king over my anxiety, Jesus. Be king over my relationship with those in my family that are hard. Be king over my work that's a challenge. Be king over my sexuality. Be king over my singleness, Jesus. That we just bring that to you and we'd submit it to your lordship and that we desire to obey you because, God, not only do you bring good news and good life to us when we press in, that life is found in your kingdom, but, God, you want to use us. You want to repurpose that struggle for your glory. What a gift. And so I just pray over this church this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to grow this family in depth and in love for you, in love for your word, in love for this city, that God, disciples would be made in Monroe because of the everyday, ordinary people living lives of obedience for your glory. Let it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.